How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I am Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 183. Oh, we're coming up, Zeke, on a big 200. 17 Like 17 weeks, yeah. 17 again. Ha-ha! I never saw that. It's not a good movie. Oh, okay. Zach, same... Zach Efron's greatest performance. Yes. Is yes. it not? I feel like that was the first film post High School Musical, right? Like, he was still... In that high school music, I never even watched high school music. Yeah, neither. I, we are the least qualified people to talk about any of these films. Yeah. <laughs> I watched. I watched Zach when he got cool. Um, how are you, Jake? <laughs> I'm. I'm all right. It's been a bit of a hectic week. Yeah, it has. Finally got my taxes done. Because uh, unlike some Tom. people, I'm not getting a return, so I dawdled that task. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm proud. That's... I got it. I. I basically. Saved nearly two thousand dollars by just actually going through them properly, and thank you, little golf clap. Not as loud as last week's golf clap with Harrison, but I'll take it anyway. Yeah, I'll take it. It's because it was only one. You were the only one clapping. Just true. We were both true. clapping last week. Yeah, so. I, I I don't have a second set of hands, so <laughs> why not? I, I I don't know. It's it's not how humans are made. Oh, okay. No, but that's good. Because I play Mortal Kombat, and, and some of those characters have... Tax in the bank. Forearms. Very nice. Well done. It's cold outside. It's cold, Much like baby. It's cold outside. The film that's this week. A, it's not a PC song. Only not that cold, but quite cold. Mm. Um, yeah, not as cold as the film of the week. I'll give you that. But Zeke. Yeah. Other than coldness, is there anything else you could tell me about the film of the week, Misery, which, of course... Rob Ryan, a film we're very excited to talk about. Yes. Um, in regards to James Kahn, but uh, we'll we'll talk about him this week. We will. I'm going to be talking a little bit yeah. more about Kathy Bates, his co-star. Mm, of course. And this one's quite intriguing to me because I haven't. I admit, I like when I think of Kathy Bates, I I can't think of many films. There are not a lot of springers to mind for me. She's kind of in a lot of things that, but not a lot of like. I wouldn't this say memorable. That's not correct. This is definitely one of the films. Yeah, this is the one I always think of first. Yeah. Um, and obviously, then you could argue this is arguably her career performance to an mm. extent, or at least the one that she will probably be most notable for. And um, what speaks to what surprises me is the level of immersion or methodology that came with it, and the fact that Rob mm. Reiner had to rake her in when she was starting to become quite isolated and a little bit too close to her character of Annie Wilkes, um, which I find interesting. Concerning? Well, concerning, (laughs) given what Annie does in the film, but more just uh, the level of dedication to that character. And we've often talked about method over madness or method v madness. and Mm. um, It is interesting to see that a Stephen Car- uh, King character became so uh, immersive for an actor. Yeah. Not normal for Stephen King characters, I would find, and often quite you would bombastically hope so. radical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, she's definitely got a, a, a radicism, if that's a word, to her, but um, no, that is pretty terrifying. What about you, Jake? Yeah, well, my, mine stems from not necessarily James Kahn himself, but more all the other potential leading men that could have been a part of the role, and uh, I believe it was Rob Reiner on the DVD commentary. Ironically, I have the DVD right here, mm-hmm. which I'm holding. I'm going to open it for the audience. You can hear a physical disc, which we've had this disc in this family household for, God, 20 years, 20 plus years. 
and it still works perfectly fine. I watched this DVD yesterday, and no, no pause, no hiccups, nothing. There you go. I'm going on a little tangent right now. My point is that this DVD does not contain the commentary track in which Rob Reiner talks about all the other leading men, you know, the tough men that he was um, looking to cast in this film, which, of course, includes Harrison Ford, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, William Hurt, uh, twice, apparently, Robert Redford, Michael Douglas, and Jack Nicholson. Now, there's a few interesting tidbits in there. I know Jack Nicholson wanted to actually play him in a stage play version of Misery. And I think Dustin Hoffman declined the role because of violence. He just wasn't comfortable with the violence. But the main assumption that Rob Reiner has for why all these men declined the role is simply because it's the least flashy role of the two. And that whoever was cast in this role would have to be in bed for six weeks and not have a lot of physical room to move and play with, which I'm um, thank God because James Khan owned it. I think he embraced that mm. uh, role, which is, yeah, I thought that was really interesting, that the number of people that that we had to go through. Yeah. And I, look, you know, it's funny you bring up, like, Nicholson, and I, I just feel like this role would be just that little bit too close to The Shining, wouldn't it? I mean... Yeah, I think that's another reason he didn't accept it. It's because he already did the Stephen King thing. The cabin fever sure. sort of situation. And, I, and again, I, baby, it's cold outside. Yes. So it, I, I, I can't see Nicholson. I actually could see Robert Redford in a role like this. I think that that... Mm. I don't know if he's too... No, it's 90. So, no, he wouldn't have been that old. I think he was doing Out of Africa at that point. Um, it's interesting yeah, no, to look at the 90. female suggested co-stars too. Oh, okay. got, like Streisand in there and, and such. And I, I couldn't imagine Barbara Streisand <laughs> doing this role. So I would have thrown in... He's probably... Had he passed away at this point, but James Stewart... Again, rear window, way too similar. Yeah, and you would have been way too old. At that yeah, point. that's like, fair. Stuart in rear window is kind of the, the age. He's already kind of older than James Cunn's probably Which is in this 36 film. years on, so... <laughs> um, fair enough, yeah, he probably like, passed. Probably... But it reminds me of a similar type that you would cast. Yeah, and I even I would even... Yeah, I would probably say Paul Newman would be too old for this role too. Oh, yeah. And, and... Paul Newman, everybody. Um, yeah, I, I think... I mean, the casting's immaculate. So oh, my God, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll no, touch we could, on that. We can second. go on all day about who could have, would have, should have, but, I mean, they nailed it. Absolutely. Jake, mm. I'm going to take a guess. Okay. This film is not on the poster behind me. Wow. It. Yeah, you're right. It is not on the poster. Of 1,100 films, you must watch at least once in your lifetime. There's just too many good Reiner films, and something has to miss. Would you? Do you think that's fair, though? Like, I think it definitely should be on the list. It's one Do of I my... personally think... Yeah. yeah, I think this is one of the best sort of one-house hot hostage situation right. films out there. Yeah. Even just um, in terms of, like, horror Because I think that's a subgenre. I mean, a sub-subgenre, the sure. hostage film. I mean, we're, we... we <laughs> Harrison brought up last week Black Phone coming out, and we talked a little bit about that at yeah, the back end yeah. of last Yeah, yeah, I think that goes wide this week, but we'll, we'll get to that later. So, um... Yeah. Yeah, it's a very prompt sort of comparison, and uh, I do think that this is one of the best to do it. It's creation of suspense and mm. intrigue and keeping you on the edge of your seat when, when one character is confined so heavily um, is, is quite fascinating. Yeah. And just the even revert, like, we'll, we'll explore a little bit more of the reverse gender role perspective. No, that's um, true, yeah. Which is such a valid part of this, this film, I believe. Mm. And how menace is created through opportunity more than anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would put that on my 1100. 
yeah, films yeah. to watch. I was, I was, uh, I know you predicted it. I was pretty shocked to see it wasn't on there at all. But um, there you're onto it, Zeke. Yeah, you're a little more onto it than I am, I suppose. But uh, yeah, regardless, um, what have you been watching in the last week? Well, I'll kick us off with um something that uh, I've watched three films, not including the film of the week. Uh, well, okay. two films, uh, one film, one documentary, and one comedy special. Oh, we, we might can... have both caught that one. We did. Um, <laughs> so I'll start with the film. I, I caught a Australian release from a couple of years back, and I obviously have a little bit of a soft affinity for Australian films. I and mean, we've often talked about where they sort of sit and how they often seem to follow... You know, if we get 10 films coming out of Australia every year, we can almost bet six to eight of them are going to be a light-hearted comedy um, <laughs> or a more satirical comedy or a, an adult comedy, and they all sit in that range. And, and Naked this film, Wanderer, How to Please a Woman, yeah, you know, um, Rams. Like the, then you've got Rams the, is a little darker than I would have guessed. but Then you've got the two or three that are like little bit more like a drama sometimes probably one of them's affiliated with crime drama and then sure. and then you normally get one sort of emotionally resonant film and i, I would say obviously last uh you know last year it was um baby uh, teeth no no the no, was the, the pool year. that was the year before um, oh um knit ram oh knit ram would probably be it and then great knit ram's great and then that's that more that really hardcore serious one, and then yeah, that's like hands on love level right oh, there. Uncomfortable. What's the one with the swimmers? I forget. Oh, uh, streamline. Streamline. That's, that's on. Um, oh, that would have came to stand pretty quickly, actually. Yeah. Now that I think about you it, you sort of get those ones. Well, uh, Bookweek sits in the kind of adult comedy stuff, and I and okay. I was looking at the reviews, and I was sitting here, and I was, I was watching. I was like, God, this is the most detestable protagonist I think I've ever watched. He's just he's this. Burnt out English teacher running a working in a lower socioeconomic school okay. and is fixated on his uh, novelist career and okay. but he is the most detestable character and everyone around him detests him. He's kind of like a Bojack level <laughs> just of detestability. <laughs> <laughs> and except there is not the emotional resonance. I th- I, th- I think that Bojack gets a whole whole six seasons to kind of Develop create that affinity towards him and it's a slow it's a slow burn because you yeah. know we, we we've talked about it over the course of this show too and how every time he looks like he's going to redeem himself he takes that step back and yep. takes it takes that step back and to be honest you don't excuse it like even at the end of season two you don't you're not supposed to really like you like oh, parts no. of him but yeah. you have no respect for him as a yeah. as a person don't think it works as well in and i say that but then you've got like inside lewin davis where lewin mm. davis is kind of a he's a tool like he's a he's a self he thinks but there's enough yeah, tragedy in okay. his life that yeah that you you, you ride you, along with him you I ride like. along you buy into it whereas yeah. and i and a lot of comparisons on letterbox were this is basically the the wrong way to do an inside lewin davis a struggling artist it's outside lewin davis yes so, um, and I sit with I, I sit with that comparison really well because I like you say you do go along the road, you buy into Lewin's journey, and even yeah. though everyone around him is kind of like, oh, well, you're a dropout, you're a loser. You could see that tragedy's really affected the artist, and his there's that certain buy-in there, yeah. and you know he gets to the end of the line and gets told he's not talented enough, 
to be a, a solo artist, right. you do feel that resonance there, yeah. missing that slight missing opportunity. So, Book Week just misses the mark on that, uh, okay. unfortunately. Um, has some funny lines in there, and but sure, was some, it WA or was it uh, South Australia? South Australia, fair enough. So. Caught that, and I caught a documentary, but I can mm-hmm. throw it back to you if you'd like. Oh, no, that's okay. You, cool. We've got a good flow going on here. Um, so, <laughs> I actually caught, um, finally caught, and I'm actually really happy. I, I had a bit of a stand week, except I ignored. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I still haven't gotten near Saul yet. Sorry. Oh, you got five weeks left. At this point, you would have to watch, like, a season per week to, to catch it with the finale. It's not going to happen anymore. Um, <laughs> Gabriella Kalthpawait's Kalth- uh, Blackfish. Which is a pretty oh, well I known. Did. I saw you log this documentary. Yeah. Um, got a lot of recognition. Very high score. Very justified, to be honest. In terms of, uh, it explores the basically just holding humans to account and a slight investigation of journalism. Good mix of archival footage and, mm. and uh, great coverage in terms of uh, pieced camera interviews and sure. exploring the well inhumane nature of of. Um, sort of this uh, capture and perform culture of SeaWorld and mm. particularly focusing on the orcas, the killer whale orcas and um, how these uh, animals are sort of herded and killed and it follows mostly this singular orca and, and how that basically, because it was a male orca, basically the generational um suffering that comes at the hand of it and basically its whole history of killing trainers unofficially oh jesus and <laughs> oh, no uh, it was it was quite remarkable that it took up until 20 years came out in 2013 this documentary okay and, well it's been and, for a bit. Uh, 2010 was when they they started to bring in some uh protection more more readily readily protection and less physical interaction with the orcas and right. it was the biggest downer of a documentary and it <laughs> hits you hard and fast but boy okay. is it effective like in terms of the nature com- conservationist and this wild animal versus human domestication um i remember when I was in high school watching uh, Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man, okay. and it was a similar um, sort of concept. I actually think this, this documentary was more effective, um, whereas that was a man going up into these national parks and living with the bears, so mm. way more living on their terms, whereas this is way more about this... Unef- like all about timing and take mm. and poor management of these animals and, and no conservation the conservation of rhetoric that hides the ill intent underneath mm. and uh, i don't think you ever look at sea world the same way uh, no, after no. watching it i'm trying to think if i've even been to sea world maybe when i went to um is it sea world in queensland that's sea world isn't it I believe so yeah yeah i've been there I don't remember much about it. <laughs> it's a tough. It is a tough pill to swallow, and yeah, um, but a very effective documentary. No, it's, it sounds like an important documentary as well. Absolutely similar rest to the other stand, um, Envoy Shark Cull. Should <laughs> everyone should get onto that as well. So, <laughs> so uh, what have you caught this week? Well, the other one I'm guessing is the one you also caught. We both watched the Bill Burr Live at Red Rock special, and um, rough Jake, two and a half stars. <laughs> 
I thought it was very repetitive. I it's very rare that I watch a Bilber thing, and this one was like eighty minutes long. It was a pretty long special, yeah, relative to his other specials. And I didn't laugh very much. I thought there's some great stuff at the end where his like abortion rant was amazing, as in, like the way he sort of brings in mm. his diplomatic but still really awful and cruel view <laughs> into abortion, but sort yes. of having that middle ground. Like I thought that was classic Bill Burr for me, but. There were so many moments where it just it felt repetitive of Paper Tiger. Like, he's doing the thing with John Wayne again and cancel culture. He's doing the thing about, you know, looking, getting one look at a girl and knowing whether she's a lesbian or not. Um, there was the other one of, like, oh, well, the, the Rihanna one where it's like, oh, well, what did she say that caused, like, accusing her almost, but that we should allow... Quite, like, uh, I've heard these jokes before. He's done a lot of this stuff. Mm. So I was just, like, I was a little surprised. It feels more improv too like he's going on more tangential responses to hecklers and getting a little deeper with his personal life and the relationship he has with his daughter like there's good stuff in there but I didn't laugh nearly as much as I was laughing during Paper Tiger I think a lot of it I heard before I don't know if you agree with that at all but no I thought it was fine I mean it yeah. wasn't I, f- I feel like from people that have watched all of Bilbo's sort of catalogue that's available, mm. it, it, Paper Tiger sits pretty comfortable. Like, that and that's probably, my like... That's like, that's yeah. That's pretty widely regarded as most people's favourite one. So, which is good for a comedian who's one an ageing comedian yeah. to have, to have a later special be uh, more liked, whereas it's often the pattern. Obviously, the trajectory is often to go um, downwards. Yeah. Um... I mean, I like maybe one or two, one more, like one of his 2010 specials or his 2011, like You People All The Same is really funny oh, and yeah. stuff like that. But there is that... I definitely think it was a little samey. Um, yeah, it was very... It felt... Even he, meant, he does another Elvis thing in there as well. I was just... Mm. I was surprised at how often I'm like, I've heard this before. Yeah. It was almost as if... Uh, uh, you know, yeah, he, he did slightly just rephrase a lot of jokes. Uh, I think the venue was quite... The venue oh, it's does gorgeous. Po- it was a gorgeous spot. I'm, I'm not sure it's a spot for stand-up comedians. I didn't know if it uh, oh, right. suited the, the, the format well, but... I thought it was where Uncat Empire was meant to play in April. I thought that's <laughs> why I was like, oh, that's where this Netflix special was shot. Um, you can't appreciate it either because, like, so much of it is, like, these beautiful red rocks with the lighting and then you've got, in the background, the cityscape... But because it's so contrasty and dark, Netflix, the bit rate is just so slow yeah. for streaming. So it's all just like jittering and pixelated. And it's like, for God's sakes. Like, yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't just quite work. No, um, not for streaming. It's a, it's a shame. Yeah. But. And I think you're right. I think there were... I actually think the, um, the little snippet they cut out so you click on the special is about the railroad is one of the funniest oh, segments. that's funny, yeah. Um... But yeah, it, it definitely was a little bit more, uh, a little samey, a little. Mm. And I think it's okay to kind of revisit similar jokes, but rephrase them if it's been ten years. Um, yeah, this felt like two, but it was two. Years, it's yeah. been two, and it's back-to-back specials, so yeah. it makes it tough. Jim Jeffries had a very similar problem after his bear gun control rant, and then right. his next two Which specials. Which is legendary. It is. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. But then the next two specials featured. Not only an extensive retort in the next one, but then in the one after that, yeah. where it becomes sort of like, that's the benchmark. And it's like, you're always asking comedians to evolve and change their material or yeah. focuses and stuff. And 
I think it was even an indicator in the Bill Burr Presents, and that was the collection of comedians right. that, because of COVID, a lot of them have really, we've almost, we've, we thought because, oh, it's been two years since they've been able to get out there, but a lot of comedy is so contextual. Yeah. And even the, the, the slight remarks in that um, stand-up compilation of, of comedians where they talked about the death of, like, some of them were making, like, sly remarks of, oh, this is the death of sort of stand-up comedy. Oh, okay. Where it's like, you know, that collection of wokeism, political correctness is just starting to seep into stand-up comics routines just too much now where it almost rules the show and can we blame will smith for that you punch any <laughs> comedian that says something you don't like yeah <laughs> i think so i think it's part of it i i think it's more just like everyone's so inclined to get offended and i found it really interesting even that bill burr special how much he was interacting with the audience but the yeah, audience like to me that. also it was, was kind of, of annoying me too because they kept just wooing for like yeah. an hour and a half and i was like what are you wooing at? Like, you're just trying to get attention now. And uh, it ended up being this almost like a child wanting attention part. And I was, yeah. I was getting quite distracted by it. And I was like, can we just get on with the, with the bits? And it felt strange in that. Yeah. Because he was interacting more and because of the venue, it, it felt like a one-time thing like this. Like, Let's shoot this one special. And it is what it is. Like there's no, usually they'll shoot a few versions of the same special and what mix in the laughs and, play with you know so you get the best yeah. result put together this felt like i wasn't doing that this felt like it was one shot at it which is respectable but again that's why i think it felt a little repetitive is it mm. it didn't feel like it was shot to be his next big special and i think it failed for that that's why i gave it two and a half stars because that that's the highest grade i can give it but also in the same sentence not recommend it I as a Bill Burr fan, it's like I really got nothing out of this. Like I got to mm. watch the ten minute segment on YouTube, and gotten my laughs out of that. Yeah. So um, which is it hurts to say because I love Bill Burr so much, but uh it is what it is. <laughs> but I was glad you you sent me a link because I totally missed it last week. Yeah, I didn't it realize just sort it was of popped up out of nowhere. Yeah. No, it was interesting, but so I'm glad you threw that my way. The only other things I really saw this week were, of course. I bragged about it last. I, I'm going to be really tough, Zeke, these next five weeks with Better Call Saul mm-hmm. doing its final run. Like, this is really tough, man, especially when I can't <laughs> spoil it for certain people. Uh, it, oh, it's so good. It's so immaculate. But it led me down this path where I watched... They were sort of promoting this as sort of tied to Better Call Saul, this yep. uh, mini-series or web-series six-part web series called Cooper's Bar, which is all on the AMC YouTube channel, free worldwide. And it's not really tied to Better Call Saul in any way, shape, or form. It's pretty much just like co-created, co-written, uh, not written, sorry, but co-directed and stars Ray Seahorn, who, of course, is in Better Call Saul. That's pretty much the only real connection. But either way, I watched the whole six episodes, which was maybe like an hour in total. And it was about these uh, sort of three characters who own this tiki bar in, in LA, and they sort of want to... You know, one's a director, one's a writer, one's an actor, and they all want to, like, you know, get their next big hit. So it's sort of a silly, fun comedy, sort of in the vein of, like, the Netflix series Love, mm. where it's sort of poking fun at itself as L.A., where the, every character is either fed up with the world around them or imbued in the world around them. you got Racy Horn, who plays, like, quote, the biggest dick in Hollywood. So she's, like, this big dick agent who comes in, and she's always criticizing people. and So she's kind of fun in that regard. Yeah. But... It's a very passive, like, 
throwaway series. Like they de- they definitely ended it in a way where it's like, oh they could continue this, where they do they they sell the show for Cooper's Bar and then oh wait here's something in the contract clause that we could do in season two and it sort of cuts to black and like it it was fun in that way in an approachable way where it's like oh it would be fun to do like a little you know 60 minute web series in six chunks and mm. put it out it would be fun to do something like that that's kind of harmless and and fun and passive entertainment but i didn't find it to be anything more than that necessarily and uh before we move on to the next thing i want to talk about i just want to throw out there because again I'm, my obsession with better call soul is gonna is really imbuing this <laughs> podcast but a uh, carol Burnett, who is confirmed to be involved in some way in these last five episodes of Better Call Saul, was originally slated to play the agent in Misery. So there there's go. a little tie-in right there. But um, Otherwise, that that's it for me. Now, Zeke, mm-hmm. we could do career updates. Yes. We could. Or we don't. Because no. we got the Emmy nominations that have just come out in the last week. Now, I feel like the Emmy nominations is probably the way to go. Yeah, okay, <laughs> let's do it then. <laughs> now, to be fair, we don't talk about TV a whole lot on the show. We obviously prioritize film more than TV, but I still think it's relevant. And between yeah. the two of us, we've seen a few of the shows that have generally been mentioned here. I'm pretty embarrassed to say out of like the 32 uh, series easies that have like multiple major nominations, mm-hmm. I've only seen five. Now, that doesn't include Stranger Things, funnily enough. I think that got up for best... Um, or outstanding drama series, but I don't okay. think I got any actor noms, so it didn't end up in that category. But I can run through some of these quickly, especially the ones that we've both seen. You've probably seen a few more of these than I have. Um, for example, I know you've seen Ted Lasso. Mm-hmm. I'm a lot to say on Ted Lasso. Uh, so there'll be a few things like that in here. Uh, but we'll quickly run through it and just get our general thoughts. For outstanding drama series, we've got Better Call Saul, Euphoria, Ozark, Severance, Squid Game, Stranger Things, Succession and Yellow Jackets. Now, between the two of us... Succession. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably going to win. It's probably going to sweep. I think Succession has 25 nominations across the whole award show. it's awesome. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I mean, even just in the acting categories alone, we have... um, Let me... Oh, not actor. Not actor in a supporting role, bro. For comedy. How dare you? Um... Oh god, why isn't it? I can't find it for some reason. But off the top of my head, you have like Jeremy Strong, Brian Cox, even just in the leading. Um, pretty sure Sarah Snook would have got it for best supporting actress. Um, god, why can't I find the? Um, oh, here we go. Here we go. So wow, Nicholas Braun, Kieran Culkin, and Matthew McFady, and all up for supporting actor in Succession. That's pretty crazy. Um, also a bunch of Squid Game noms in here as well for the actors, which I think is really nice. And we'll mm-hmm. see if uh, one of them does win. Oh, yeah, and I wanted to give a shout-out as well to J. Smith Cameron, who plays Jerry in Success. She also got nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which I'm very... That's that's nice. Yeah, well, Jerry did have a good season. She had a great season. A lot, a lot of them are really good seasons. Um, I can't go without mentioning Ray Seahorn. Finally, finally getting a bloody Emmy nomination after, what, six, seven years of rightfully deserving one. I'm just so... And it's weird, because, like, I was talking to Blake about this, and he agrees it's... This is a weird year for her to be finally nominated, because it is sort of that half last season, where it's a lot of build-up to the mm. things that are going to pay off now in these weeks. And I was... I don't know. It was, I felt like she had way better material in the last, like, four seasons. 
And then this season, she's sort of reserved for a specific reason, but I'm not going to complain. She absolutely deserves the nomination. Um, so you went with uh, Succession, probably deserves of how outstanding drama series. Sure. I will probably agree with you. Like I said, with Better Call Saul, it's tough because it is just a half season of setup. So it's hard for me to say it deserves to be any of these other shows. Even things like Stranger Things. Have, did you finish Stranger Things, mm-hmm. by the way? Nice. Yes. Well done. So you're all up to date. Yes. Even just the production value alone, the fact that the season is like, what, eight hours long between... No, it'd be more than eight it'd hours. It'd be at least it? ten, I think. It's it. I mean, pretty much every episode's at least over an hour long. Yeah. In runtime. It's at least... I'd say it's at least ten hours. Yeah, you know, you know I'm getting confused? Because I did the minutes. It's over 700 minutes. That's where I got seven hours from. So mm. it's, it's definitely over 10. <laughs> so it's 13 hours. Jesus Christ. Even Yeah, just like even that alone. It's, it's, I know it's not a numbers game, but it's like the production value in that show is just bonkers. And they pay for it, but, you know, but there are some shows like... I mean, the Stranger Things budget is not that dissimilar to the Obi-Wan and Marvel show budgets. Mm. And I can tell you which show looks like it spent that money <laughs> in the right direction. Um, yeah, but you're probably right. I'll have to go with Succession. The fact that neither of us have seen Yellow Jackets or you, uh, or Ozark or Severance. I have seen Euphoria as well, but I had a lot of problems with the story of season two of Euphoria. So move from that. Uh, outstanding comedy series, we have Abbott Elementary, Barry, which I'm hearing great things about, Kirby Enthusiasm, Hacks, The Marvelous, uh, Mrs. May- Maisel. Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso, and What We Do in the Shadows. I haven't seen any of these. <laughs> it's got to be Lasso. Honestly, in all seriousness, season two of Ted Lasso is... It's emotional resonance, mm. and it's balance between emotional resonance and comedy is why I would I would put that up. Yeah, um, sure. Compared to, even compared to its first season. I think the first season's... Is, is is nifty and nice, but it's what they take from that and put into the second season. Mm. I think that's... And apparently there's only going to be three seasons, so it's going to like... Oh, wow. That's it's it. it's short a, and sharp. Um, which I think is fantastic, too, like knowing that, that it's... That kind of makes be, me want to watch it more. Knowing yeah, well, that it's like Westworld. So I mean, this is it. This is the last season of Westworld, wow. season yeah. four. And to be honest, after that episode I watched today, mm. it's like, you can see why. Like, they're perfect chapters. Right. Um, and I was thinking about how secular that is. And, and Lasso's even follows that formula too. It's very much, you can almost see it's, it's going to, I reckon by the end of season three will be almost like a perfect hero's journey over three seasons. Mm. Like that's cool. And I think that's going to be really cool. So, um, yeah, I, I'm happy to say, I don't know. I haven't yeah. watched any of the others. I heard only murders in the buildings quite fun. Okay. So. I will say I'm hearing Barry's excellent for it's, I, I, I guess a similar thing to what Ted Lasso does and sort of the resonance versus comedy. Like mm. I'm from what I've heard about the last few episodes, I'm shocked this is in a comedy section. I don't know if it's subverting expectations. I guess it's like putting Lasso on. does that too though. It's emotional sure. weight. Yeah. Perfectly balanced. It's very much what I call a traditional, um, what has become the new age American comedy, which is right. we have to have just as much good. depressing stuff as we do funny <laughs> stuff. Like it's going to be love not- it. I a nice co- comedy meets tragedy. It's pure Shakespearean. Oh, beautiful. Look at you guys. Like. <laughs> on, the, on the Ted Lasso selling yes. train. No, but I'm generally serious. That makes me kind of want to watch it more, knowing it's going to be short, sharp, three seasons. and Yeah. Yeah. Very it's nice. Too. 
I'll, yeah, I'll give you that. Um, having not seen any of these, I, I reckon Barry will probably get it, just from the things I've heard about it. Well, I mean, Ted but... Lasso won last year. Oh, did it? Oh, the Emmys, there, you, yeah. there you go. All right. But yeah, I'm I'm grossly undereducated in this category. And most of the other categories in this section are you know, about variety talk shows, your Jimmy Kimmel's and John Oliver's and that, your sketch shows, which are literally just Black Lady Sketch Show or Saturday Night Live. It's literally just those two in the variety sketch series. Um, so you've got stuff like that. I will, ooh, this is pretty cool. Our Sandy Variety Special for the Harry Potter 20th Anniversary Edition. That's pretty cool. And a Norm MacDonald Nothing Special special, which hopefully he wins after his passing, of course. Mm-hmm. He's great. Uh, the only other one I'll talk in this t- in the programs categories is for uh, Outstanding Limited or Anthology Series, which includes Dope Stick, the Dope Sick, excuse me, The Dropout, Inventing Anna, uh, Pam and Tommy, and The White Lotus. The White Lotus literally has sweeped all the acting categories. Like, if I look at... Is it Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama? Is that what I'm looking for? Oh, no, sorry. It's a limited series. Duh. Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Limited Series. Literally one, two, three, four, five, six, seven nominations. Five of them are going to Actresses in the White Lotus, including uh, Sydney Sweeney, who, of course, got nominated for Euphoria as well. Um, So, based on that alone, (laughs) it might get there, just based on how many bloody acting nominations it got. Um, but I've also heard Pam and Tommy's good. Uh, I've wanted to see the dope, dope sick for a while. That looks really good. I think mm. my mum started watching that actually. So I might see if I can catch up with her on that. Um, but in terms of the other acting categories, I'll give shout outs to Colin Firth and, um, Tony Collette for the staircase, which I saw chunks of, and they're both very good. Colin Firth is very good in it. Uh, Andrew Garford for Under the Banner of Heaven. Oscar Isaac for Scenes from a Marriage. I've wanted to catch that as well. I've heard that's really good. Um, Michael Keaton as well for the for Dope Sick. And um, Caitlin Dever, I think her name is. I mean, she got nominated as well for the same show. Uh, Margot Qualley for Maid. Amanda Seyfried for The Dropout. So there's a lot of Julia Garner for Inventing Anna. I think she would have got nominated in Ozark as well. I'm just seeing if I could find it here. Oh, Laura Linney's up for Ozark. That makes sense. Um, oh, and Julia Guy for Ozark as well. There you go. It all ties together, Zeke. It all ties together. I don't want to seem like I'm just reading a list, but um, those are some of the, the standouts for me, which I'm looking Oh, and Peter Skarsgård for Dope Sick. There's also a lot of great uh, guest nominations from Succession, including Adrian Brody, of course. Nice. <laughs> so you got nominated. Very good. Uh, in terms of the uh, writing... Uh, no Weddings and a Funeral by Jack Becker for Tad Lasso got nominated for Outstanding Writing. Um, let's see what else. Planning Execution for Better Call Soul got the writing nom. One Lucky Day for Squid Game. Uh, All the Bells Say for Succession. I think three episodes from Succession got directing noms, which is awesome. But uh, yeah, going through this, those are sort of the ones that stick to me. Again, we're not, we're both not hugely up to date with a lot of these shows there's a, a lot of shows there's a lot of shows a lot of tv it's hard to catch up but just looking at this list i mean succession's the big 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 it's got 25 nominations that's the big like clean sweep in terms of noms so it's, it's good we're both up to date on that mm. ironically the one below that is ted lasso with 20 nominations that's insane um so you're up to date on that one which is good but then a couple of down is euphoria at 16 so i'm up to date on that so what zig we're trying here yeah. We're trying. There's so many bowls to put out. 
There's so many balls full of water for us to dip our toes in. You know what I mean? I tried with that analogy. I really did. You gave it your best job. I did. I tried, tried, but let's stop talking about TV <laughs> sake. <laughs> There's too much to talk about. <laughs> let's hope succession uh, cleans up. Yeah, just so we can be like, oh, we're on top of the Emmys. Yeah. We know what's going on. Exactly. <laughs> well, I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? Bazik. <laughs> We're watching Misery. I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the Misery novels. You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird how could you misery chastain cannot be dead misery spirit is still alive i don't want her spirit i want her and you murdered her you don't think he's dead do you and don't even think about anybody coming for you because i never called them nobody knows you're here and you better hope nothing happens to me because if i die you die you've been out is this what you're looking for eventually you'll come to accept the idea of being here annie whatever you think i'm not doing please don't do it any for god's shh darling trust me god's sake it's for the best god i love you novelist paul sheldon crashes his car on a snowy Colorado road. He is found by Annie Wilkes, the number one fan of Paul's heroine, Misery Chastain. Chastain? Oh, it's Chastain. It's Chastain, yeah. I thought you were going to say she fell in love with his heroin addiction. No, he doesn't No, no he's, he's, he's not that kind of writer. <laughs> apparently in the book, which I haven't read, apparently they focus more on these alcohol, drug addiction and... Film doesn't go into any of that. Right. Which I I think is a fine choice. What are you doing? Getting myself more comfortable. Oh, fair enough. I'm and putting you're, myself you're, into... You're tucked in... I should have had a, a dressing gown and put myself in, in, in I'll a give you. I'll give you my dressing gown. And it's probably an, too small for you. Authentic misery experience. Jake, <laughs> this was my second time watching this film. Wow. When was the first time you saw it? I was like 10. Oh, okay. <laughs> a while Back ago. Back in the Blockbuster days. We got yeah. from Blockbuster down the road from where we live. Um, we would have gone in the same Blockbuster. Yes. And my mum was like, you guys have to watch this movie. <laughs> and when it, I've always thought back on that. Because the amount of times my mum my used to do that and we'd watch a movie and she'd almost forget things. Watching the sledgehammer scene in this yes was famous hoppling hoppling tradition let me find out brutal yeah it's not a it's not very nice hobbling and watching the uh watching the sheriff get pinged back about 150 meters (laughs) (laughs) that's uh, sad that never really gets any closure does it no it really doesn't because they really develop the sweet sarcastic relationship with him and his wife his deputy wife but I hope he's dead. Yeah. Spoiler alert. 
<laughs> and he's such a nice, yeah, he's such a nice character. I know. Oh, um, yeah, Jack. look, we obviously, you know, this the late James Khan and um, yeah, I thought we'd do this film for for him. Um, we are we've shown much love to Rob Reiner over the course of this show's runtime, and we have, yeah. Trying to give it a yeah, we just thought we a little give more this love. Book. Yeah, I mean, like like I said at the top of the show, I mean, I think this is one of the best hostage situational thrillers, thriller dramas there is out there. I think mm. this film is only rivaled by something like Ten Cloverfield Lane. Oh, it's so good. But then you could argue Ten Cloverfield Lane's last fifteen minutes takes away from it. It's kind of a miracle of how terrible that film's ending is that it doesn't stain the film. We still talk about 10 Cloverfield Lane in such, like, a high praise. You should pretend the last 15 minutes don't exist. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> at least with Misery, at least the ending's immensely better than that ending. Yeah, and it was... You know what? It, the way they use Goodman in that, finally using, like, John Goodman as this really yeah. imposing presence. This is a 10 presence. Cloverfield Lane podcast now. But, <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was leading it into sure. how yep. you make someone like Kathy... Bates, right. menacing and evil, and it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it's mm. like you know, it's taking that um, that Florence Nightingale nurse and sort of flipping it on a more uh, crazy. I, I, I always said about Stephen King writings because mm. there are a lot of Stephen King adaptations out there now. Plenty, yeah. Um, that his writings are very radical, and they could, like they take a sim- normally a simplified character and then turn them up to eleven. Right. If we want to quote another Rob Reiner film, um, <laughs> and this is no exception. It's obviously yeah. taking the the Florence Nightingale character and basically going, uh, turning it up to eleven, making her so like possessed with this 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 author that. Yeah. Um, you know, she's willing to look beyond the, the point of rationality, which often a lot of characters in Stephen King novels seem to spiral out of any sense of rationality by the end of the film. Yeah. <laughs> and are just blatantly uh, evil. But the way that this film withholds violence for as long as it does yeah, is, quite as as it does, yeah. is quite impressive. Well, it, I think just the, the general concept is so engaging enough as it is. And even... You know, at the beginning when he is, he wakes up in the hospital bed, or, or in a bed, I should say. Um, and the first thing she says, oh, I'm your number one fan. And I'm, I'm sure we have a number one fan of this podcast, Zeke, somewhere. But uh, we ha- thankfully haven't quite met that person <laughs> just yet. But right off the bat, she's already, not unhinged, but there's al- there's already this sense of uncomfortability and that she's pretty open to admitting that she sort of stalks him and watches the cabin with... I think she says she watches it with binoculars and following his car into the snowstorm. And, like, already, it's it's not like... There isn't a, a gradual easement into the horror and just how crazy she is. But it doesn't start at zero. Like I said, we get to 11. We probably started about four. We yeah. already know, like, something's not quite right here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty early when we realize she's lying about the roads being closed and and the the telephones being down and that there's something already quite off about that. And I think you take that simple idea, and you're right. Like withhold the violence for as long as you can. It can get violent towards the end, but then you inject that 
and this idea that we sort of see in like the king of comedy and i know it's a bit of a meme but the fanatic and these films that explore the relationship between the artist and the fan and starts to bl- blend those lines like it's not a, it's not an idea we haven't seen mm. before the king connie kim king of comedy came out what about six eight years before this film did so it's not entirely a new concept in that regard but to use it in such a tense situation where yeah. she's keeping him I mean, hostage the, the, the king of comedy it's great uh sort of follows it uh, you know obviously in scorsese's coming off the back of taxi driver where mm. it's like we're following a character become progressively more unhinged yeah um and trying to rationalize their silly i mean king of comedy is played more for comedic effect than any sort of malicious intent really sure I mean, but you the, never you never feel like um you definitely don't feel as much danger yeah but even like the, even just the dot point lines like that, I think that comes back really to direction because at the end of the day, there's still like a hostage being taken with the threat of gun violence, and there's still all of that in the King comedy. But you're right, it's done in a lot more of a lighthearted way. Yeah. While this film, from the very get go, is like we're going to do a similar concept, but it's a lot more dangerous well, from the word go. It's the way go. that um, you know the way that De Niro's character in King of Comedy is, is a bit more of a bumbling idiot. Like, yeah. like, like he doesn't really methodically think of how he's going to steal. Um, I'm trying to, uh, I've, I remember, what's his name? Pumpkin? Was it Pumpkin? Pumpkin. Oh, Jerry something. Pumpkin? It's something so, like that, isn't yeah. it? It is something <laughs> kind of odd. Um, and how he's... Oh, you know, what is it now? Oh, yeah, I'm curious. Rupert Pumpkin. Rupert Pumpkin, that's it. You got it for me. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great name. And you got Jerry Lewis as well. Jerry Lewis. Room. And yeah. it's it's sort of like one of those Jerry things Linford. where, you know, the it's not thought out. Like, this is more a mystery unraveling that, that um, you know, Annie has, has sort of methodically picked the the opportunity. And that's why I bring mm. back to opportunities, everything in this. Like, yep. you know, at first it's the opportunity to steal, uh, you know, and to so, sort of kidnap but indirectly kind of play it off like um, he's saved, you know, he's right. been saved by her. But then he does the same. He finds opportunities to, you know, craft things with, you know, with a little bobby pin to break out and opportunities yeah. to explore the house and, and get clues. And you're right. It's very opportunist on both sides of the fence. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it cat and mouse is an, is an accurate depiction, which is quite fascinating when you think about the cat knows where the mouse is and the mouse knows where the cat is. So it right. always becomes this, um, because of the, the, the physical disability that Sheldon's plagued with because of his injuries, mm. it, it, the, the field has become, as we discover, is very level and always favors Annie right up until pretty much the end. Yeah. Um, well, that goes into what you were teasing about earlier was sort of the gender switch up. Is you can use that as like, oh, well, you know, he's a sort of a James Khan's a big tough guy. He was in the Godfather but you put him in this vulnerable situation where he's pretty much helpless against this woman who at least on the surface, you know, she's sort of wearing this, not not quite looking like a nun, but she's got her clothes. I've actually got the exact... She won't use vulgar language. She won't use the vulgar language. She's very <laughs> uppity about that, very religious. She's got the cross around her neck. And I want to find the exact... I actually wrote it down. I forget the name of the dress that she wears. Not the dress, but the thing she wears on top of the dress. It almost looks a bit like a... Like overalls, I got the name for it somewhere, but she looks, on the face of it, quite innocent, mm. like a sweet, caring nurse. And we obviously find out later, like, oh well, there's a reason she's not a nurse who works 
every day. That's actually something you don't even think about when watching it. It's like, why isn't she going to work? Mm. You don't really question that for a while. No. Until you realize, yeah, what she's done. Because you're almost because <laughs> you're you're along the ride with Paul Sheldon. You're a, you're a disorientated by the situation you find yourself in, and you're yeah. sort of trying to you you get so caught up trying to work out what's kind of going on that you forget that yeah she's not attending her job and um there's there's very real reasons behind it you know <laughs> yeah that we find out over the course of the film but but yeah she definitely has the visual demeanor where you feel a bit safer, even though even though there's little hints of I've been a little cuckoo and even the like I love the cocky doody doo language that she uses and the I remember when we watched this like as kids, because we were actually very similar. We had seen this film multiple times, not just once, but I was probably about your age when you first saw it as well. Mm-hmm. And we would always we would always laugh at like Kathy Bates's delivery of Oh Paul and Oh God, I love you Paul and I'm watching it now, like, simultaneously creeped out, but also just laughing because of how, like, creepy her performance is. Yeah. <laughs> and she almost struggles to even admit that she loves him. Kind of like, you know, you go through that relationship and you have that moment of like, when do you drop the L-bomb? It's like, it looks like she's going through that same thing, but for this guy <laughs> that she worships as has a shrine for. But uh, we uh, would literally count how many times she said, oh, pole, because we noticed it. It was that distinctive in her performance, her delivery mm. of that line. It was so good. Yeah, I was a, I was a big fan of of just the the snapping points yeah. and and you, yeah, I I joked about the dirty birdie thing, but it's those lines <laughs> where it's like it's you dirty recontextualizing wholesome language and using it in a malicious sense, which this film does a very good job at doing and. I like almost these very awkward sort of slightly above eye level angles and slightly below oh, eye yeah. level where it almost distorts it's a little crooked yeah. distorts Annie's face to the point where it kind of makes one of her eyes kind of slightly protrude a little out to the <laughs> left. And I always remember that's the thing I remember and I saw it and I was like, that's how you kind of know. I mean, it's that off kilter. It's like an It's a, a, a twist a, on the an asymmetric, shot. Yeah, it's an asymmetrical yeah. sort of um uh asymmetrical Dutch tilt in the face (laughs) rather than the camera (laughs) where it's like you immediately you're made uncomfortable by her surging towards the camera and and investigating what Paul's doing and um the thing I was thinking of earlier was a pinfold dress that's what I was referring to a penny fold penny fold that's got pinfold but yeah like yeah kind of the overalls thing Mm. but anyway a bit of a side tangent there (laughs) but almost like a child in an adult's body Mm. I know it's sort of a classical way of dressing, but this is... I'm pretty sure this is a contemporary. Like, the film came out in 1990. I don't think the film suggests that... Nobody has a computer, for example. He's using no. a typewriter. But no. generally, it's pretty contemporary technology. Yeah, you'd probably argue it's probably and... set in, like, the early 80s, or at least at the time in which the book was written, maybe. Sure. Like, the... Um, but, like Could've you said, it's... Several it... years earlier. I'm not, I have no idea when the book was written. Um, I'm just having a quick gaze. Uh, but yeah, no, there's no suggestion of of time or anything like that. But you know, this always the the benefit is obviously it's in a secluded cabin in the middle of nowhere. He's a writer. Yeah. He had he's a traditionalist writer. He's a well established writer. He might like writing with a typewriter and yeah. Um, so everything like doesn't suggest like doesn't suggest it's a, obviously this film if it was recontextualized for the 21st century would have. So many holes to plug. 
Very... Yeah, but I I don't think it's impossible either. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, you would she would just take like his cell phone and all those things and come mm. up with excuses not to. I mean, you're right. You would have to ride around the whole like, oh well, the power lines are down, so you can't make a phone call. You would kind of have to work harder to make those excuses work. But like I said, the film doesn't start at zero with mm. with Annie. It kind of starts at a a point where you're already a little uncomfortable by how much she's willing to, to open up to this guy and her obsessive nature. I don't think it's impossible to redo this film with the modern contemporary technological stuff, but um, but it also helps this film. But. So what's your take on the profanity side, which serves as such a uh, an important part of the script when it comes back to not just that the script of the film, but the manuscript Paul creates? and Right. And the rejection for you know wanting to like destroy it because of the profanity, and it goes. I know it goes against completely Annie's sort of discourse and idea, but yeah. what's what's King trying to say there? It's. I think there's a lot going on there because ultimately that's sort of serving this again this idea of of fan ownership over what the artist creates for them, and that this is this is a debate as old as time. We can get into the mm-hmm. you know George Lucas versus the fans. I think that's what the film's called. But th- this idea of, like, do fans have a sense of ownership over, in that case, Star Wars, or in any other case, any of the IP? And I think that's where this twists a little differently from something like The King of Comedy, where it is about control of the actual product itself. And when we first meet Annie, she's taken aback, like, oh, mm. you know, would you mind if I read this? Like, oh my, are you serious? Like, she she feels privileged to be able to even read the thing, the fact that She's like, oh, what's it called? And, and, you know, Paul says, oh, I don't know, but if you have any ideas yourself. She's so privileged at the idea of she has the honor to give it a title. But then, you know, throughout the course of the film, she becomes more controlling of, okay, well, I'm going to make him burn this book. I'm going to make him rewrite a Misery novel and make her come back. She's controlling the narrative. She even writes the title, mm. Misery's Return. Yeah. So I think it's just this huge sense of hypocrisy on her part where it, she very, as a fan, very quickly goes from being honored by her involvement in potentially naming the book and, and giving criticism to thinking that she has the complete right to do that yeah. at, at the stake of literally murdering him if he doesn't do what she says. So I think in regard to the language, that's the disregard between the artistry. Because he, he, again, he has an answer for all these questions. He has an answer for why misery dies. She dies in childbirth, and it's common for the 1870s. He has an answer for the swearing, you know, oh, well, I, I was a kid in the slums, and these are slum kids, and this is how they talk. And her response is, well, it's not how I talk, so you should change it. And I, it's, just, it's part of that very selfish control over the artistry that she very quickly goes to from yeah, gets that power to her <laughs> yeah to her head. exactly i think i think that's all to do with that but at the end of the day she's a liar because she she's swearing mm. a lot by the end of the film yeah <laughs> oh god no nah, what a what a great character but that's sort of my answer to that that question right there yeah well i think it's that I think censorship plays into it, like you said. It's the, but in this case, it's the creative censorship of hmm. at the at the mercy of of the fans. And you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I think this film has obviously resonance. You know, we we always talk about how you know the the next MCU film comes out, and hmm. fans like this stuff or hate this stuff, and then we watch as a corporation corrects it. So we've almost lost. We've constantly talked about how directors in the MCU realm are 
being muffled of their mm. creative identities or yeah. voices because they're trying to circumstantially appease an audience or yeah. hit a, hit the right demographics because of a of, of a producer. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and that's sort of kind of what this this film's saying. I mean, the interaction at the end with the agent, there's no sort of suggestion that the publisher has a problem with what Sheldon's writing. It's more about the... Sure the trauma that he faces where he sees her face everywhere. I have to ask mm. with that ending as someone who watched it, younger man and now watched it as, as a, an as older a, man, as a, an old, old, what do old you get man? out of that ending? Cause I'm still a little confused relative to the film. I watched okay. why he sees her everywhere. What's the, what's, what's the purpose of that? It, yeah, it felt a little watching it this most recent time. I was like, it's a little more jarring than I remember this ending. Um, I get the whole idea that he is traumatized by what he went through there and he's afraid of his fans. And and it comes back to that line where the girl, the, who, the actual waitress there, she says, I'm your number one fan. It's almost like, oh God, she's just replacing the other number one fan who he had to brutally murder 18 months prior. But yeah, Let's be real. Uh, After uh, that experience, <laughs> why wouldn't you just retire from writing? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I thought it was more interesting that he just denies the idea of like he's going to turn that story into a book i thought that was a more interesting way to play it of he's so traumatized by it that he's not going to turn it into a story i think i think paul sheldon's sort of integrity because it goes back to your star wars argument of for me it loses all sanctity when you hear rumors of they're going to remake episode seven eight nine they're going to just try again because people didn't like it. And for me, it's like that destroys the sanctity of doing it in the first place. And there are things that are canon, there are things that are not canon. But once the people on the other side of the fence, it's like fans could have that response of, I like to think this doesn't exist because it just it kind of ruins it for me. I think mean, it's a perfectly fine response. We joke about that all the time with Absolutely. certain films. Like I know a lot of 789, people... 789, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and there you go. But... When it comes to the point where I feel like artists need to sort of put their foot down, even with things like that, and just be like, this is what it is. And you you lose all sense of sanctity with that. And I, I don't know if that's the connection they're trying to go with, is that this memory is, is sacred to James Khan's character, and that's why he won't write it, because it could be used against him. There's multiple times when, and I'll get into it one of my highlight scenes later, but there is multiple times where his own words are used against him because she's so obsessive with watching his interviews and the things that he says on talk shows. And so I wonder if it's just like a privacy thing for him. I mm. just need to keep this private because I I need, I can't have fans know everything about me. I don't know. I, like I said, I don't think it's the most elegant way to do that ending. I think it's still a little jarring, but I think I get what they're doing there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't know if you would agree with that. No, it's, it's very fair. It's, it's, it it sort of has the same sort of um, sort of I think as a, there's an open ended subjectivity to it the same that something like American Psycho has that right sort of like what did I just watch what is that <laughs> what does that mean and you're left a little curious about it and what yep. does that say about that commentary on on sanctity and and um, ethical writing or even ethical mm. uh, pride in in your work the fact that like you're saying big franchises are willing to just throw out three movies that cost millions and millions of dollars just because a bunch of people aren't happy with them. Yeah. 
is it's, that's not artistry it's not artistry at no. that point it's it's just mass produced it's mass media in yeah. its most purest capitalistic form it's like doing new coke and then going back to coke yeah it's like you're just trying to get a product that people like and will buy yeah it's not artistry anymore There's... you're not putting your foot down on something you're satisfied with and i don't think i don't think him writing about his his trauma is is tacky or anything i mean sure. it's just it would be a perspective of drama it would be interesting it's kind of the more obvious ending though in a way it would be. Is that he just writes it, yeah. He writes it or even gets movie deals made. Like, he becomes a published <laughs> author and, and does actually get movie. Like, has that yep. meta-narrative going on there? And yep. But have that commentary that that's kind of, like, tacky, that he's turned an, a, a traumatic incident that actually got innocent people killed. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. commercialized At least it. one person, um, yeah. Because it's, it's shit, like... Whenever made out to say Sheldon, Sheldon is our protagonist, but that doesn't make him a good person. He's right, well, innately, know, yeah. He's sure. a reclusive, you know, alcoholic uh, sort of drug user. Very cynical of his fan base too. Quite removed from his fan base. There's definitely, uh, even though you know, I think the first couple of interactions, though, unfortunately, we only ever get to see his interactions with Annie. For 95% of the film, you're right. We never really get to see interactions with normal fans. Right. What if he was more cynical and jarring towards those fans? So when we come across Annie, we're just like, oh, maybe he's just a Do we buy into that a little bit more? That's interesting. It would have been, yeah, interesting to see, you're right, like an example of him interacting with just a regular fan. What if he's very dismissive? Down the street. He's not a very light... Like, does he become... Like more likable when he's put in that hostage situation. If we had a first fifteen minutes where he goes to like maybe a uh, a writers banquet or something or networking mm. event where people like even other writers around him and he's dismissive of them or something, do he? Right. Where he becomes a little bit more egotistical and stuff because really, from what we know, he's reclusive and just gets put in a really hard situation and is told to get out of that really hard circumstantially. Right. And it's you're very, rooting for him. Yeah, it's straightforward, you know, bare bones in terms of this is the drama and this is, like, the stakes. But in, to your point, though, I don't really think he's an unlikable character. Like like I said, the, the drugs and alcohol thing, the film doesn't really go into that. In fact, I agree. he quits drinking and smoking and the only time he does it, and I actually love the way the film portrays this, is... He has his one cigarette, um, I guess like his matchbox, and then the drink for each book he finishes. So when I, when we are introduced to Paul Sheldon in this manner, my thinking is, oh, well, this is a, first off, a very experienced writer. He's hitting his deadline. He's very polite. And we find out later, you know, he pays his bills and he, he doesn't bother people. And yeah, he's reclusive, but I don't think that makes him a bad person at all. And even as Annie's, you know, dream is coming to life, like, oh my God, I get to spend my life with Paul Sheldon and, you know, gushing about him and praising him. And he's just on the other end of the room being like, I need to get in contact with my daughter. Today's her birthday. Like, I need to get in contact with her. I need to tell my agent I'm alive. I think I didn't get any sort of negative mm. um, no, no. sense from him. Yeah. But I agree. It would have been interesting to see a more layered character exploration beneath that. The thing I do like, though, is that the film very scarcely ever uses, like, He's writing. He's not like the MacGyver of, of writers. Mm. He very rarely actually uses things to escape in regards to his own writing. The closest we get is with the bobby pin 
he makes a joke as he's trying to unlock it, being like, I can write about it, but I can't do it in real life. That's the closest we ever get to, like, he's going to use a thing he learned while writing this book, like Slumdog Millionaire, and he's going to do this mm. to get out. They don't do any of that. It's all very, like, logical things of him not taking the tablets, pretending to swallow, hiding tools, hiding the knife, um, even, like, using the wheelchair. Like, he's very clumsy. He keeps hitting walls with it. And again, it's like they're not using his, like, expertise as a writer to bypass any of that. He's just yeah. a regular guy in this helpless situation. Who relies on blunt force in the end. <laughs> so, yeah, that's one way to use it, the word blunt. <laughs> but no, right. I, I think that says a lot about his character, even without all the bells and whistles. Excuse me, of having him interact with fans prior and the interaction he has with the fan at the end of the film that... That probably is the closest we get to that scene you're describing, but that's mm. after the trauma. So it almost doesn't really establish anything. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's. I think that's interesting. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I think I'll quickly give a shout-out to, I, I guess, the environmental storytelling of this film. Because, again, like when you have him break out of that room, there's a lot of scenes where there is no dialogue. He's sort of exploring and looking around, and the camera's sort of panning across different tables and benches mm. and memorabilia of Annie's and this is the first time we're really seeing a big chunk of her personality is we're sneaking into these rooms and we feel like a bit of a fly on the wall of what's this journal here what are all these weird uh, animal statues that are all facing I think west I, I, I appreciate the environmental storytelling mm. of just the, the more you look the more it tells you about Annie without it being explicit so I thought I thought that was quite nice yeah no worries well yeah. Jake Mm. what was your highlight scene probably I did think I mean the the hobbling scene is classic I don't think we need to talk about that too much just horrifying (laughs) even just in Fury and I think I I sort of alluded to before but I loved the introduction to the sheriff Sheriff Buster particularly because obviously we're getting a bit of his sort of small town personality and he's like oh well I'm, I'm guessing neither of them busy because I'm both of them that kind of fun laid back attitude but mm. the fact that he's on the phone with this big town agent just the the juxtaposition of those two phone calls yeah i thought that was really cool but i think my highlighting has to be when she forces him to burn the manuscript that scene is so good because in terms of making you as an audience feel helpless there is no way out of that scenario he can't talk himself out of it because you know she already knows from talk shows that he doesn't have copies of manuscripts. This is the only one. And from his perspective, you're thinking like, oh God, all of this hard work, you could technically just rewrite the book. You can do that. But the amount of work and effort that it would take, and then now she has bloody, she's putting gasoline on your bed sheets. Just the slow depletion of hope in that scene before you have to literally burn that work. Scene. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. What would be your highlight scene? Um, I, I do actually really like the sort of, uh, first interaction, but I'm I'm gonna opt for one of the the first sort of investigation scenes when we're okay. moving around the house because the way I just love the way that this film creates anxiety mm. when you know Annie leaves, Annie comes back, and the music we didn't even talk about the oh score, but the score the cr- just creates that anxiety side to it. Um, the final interactions quite the final conflicts great with the with the use of the basement stairs and. Oh um, yeah, that's excellent. The typewriter hit is <laughs> brutal. Um, it's a great little setup. He's using the the typewriter in the montage just to get re- regain his strength 
Yeah. When in all reality, he's going to use it as a weapon. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have to say those. And Sheriff Buster is just the most likable character and has the saddest death. In... It's very unceremonious, isn't it? And shocking just gets quick. no closure. No, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's it. No, but it, it's it's a great film. Like I said, it's it's. I probably was way too. We probably were both way too young to watch it mm. when we did initially, but just great a classic. Yeah, it's a great hostage suspense thriller. Mm. Misery is currently out in wide release and any streaming platforms. No, unfortunately, mm. I'm gonna have to rent or buy this one. I had it on DVD, thankfully, but uh, it's worth it, guys. It's yeah. worth it, so jump on that. Well, speaking of streaming platforms, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Well, it's a pretty quiet week. We have the Russo's The Grey Man, which finally... I shouldn't say finally. I was i was shocked that it even came to cinemas last week, but it is now coming to streaming. I want to quickly, before we move on, because they said some very controversial things recently, The Russo's. Kind of weird coming from them, of all people, but I really want to get your take on this. So I'm going to read some of the quotes they said in regards to the experience of watching films in cinemas versus streaming and the accessibility of it. Sure. Um, keep in mind, these guys directed the biggest films of all time, which were Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, mm-hmm. um, that wouldn't have been anywhere near as successful if not for the fear to go and experience. Just putting it out there before I read these quotes that they came up with. And I will... Um, paraphrase because they actually swear quite a lot in this. Okay. They seem very angry in this. Uh, I think particularly Joe Russo was saying this. We're in crisis right now because everyone's at war with each other. It's sad to see as guys who grew up loving film. A thing to remember too is that it is an elitist notion to be able to go to the theater. It's a very effing expensive, or it is very effing expensive. So this idea that was created that we hang on to, that the theater is a sacred place, this is that word sacred again, is bullshit. And it rejects the idea of allowing everyone in under the tent. Where digital distribution is valuable... Other than what I said earlier about how it pushed diversity is that people can share accounts. They can get 40 stories for the cost of one story. by having, But by having some kind of culture about whether there's value in it or not is effing bananas to us. So, I'm confused by this for a lot of reasons. That they have two of the highest grossing films of all time <laughs> in cinemas and have probably funded, their, well, they've funded the rest of their lives off the back of those. You would hope so, yeah. It's, I, I'm sort of thrown off by this. And again, there's more quotes about how they shot the Grey Man to be a cinematic experience for it to be seen on the big screen. So it's just, it's so weird what they're saying. They're going back and forth on this comment. But to me, I needed to think about why I was so annoyed by this. I inherently don't want to insult that they're calling it an elitist motion to go to the cinema. It is expensive to go to the cinema if you're paying for a family of five with popcorn and drinks. That is expensive. So expensive to go to Luna with a privilege card and watch one movie by yourself. That's not expensive. It's also one of those things now Mm. where it's... I've always found this really interesting because I obviously we've been to a lot of movies together and and I actually would say, you know, it's probably a 50-50 split on whether you even get popcorn or anything like that. You really don't... We're not like... the, the, The real surplus does come from spent yeah getting all the the accessories that come with the cinematic experience when especially here in australia and in most places in in western world cinemas are based in shopping centers and most cinemas aren't going to critique you for bringing in outside stuff (laughs) i've been bringing outside stuff in 
my whole time going to the cinema. Yeah, like, it's really... been a very, very long time since that's been a big deal. Um, snacks in yourself. So then I sort of see here and I go, okay, well, then it, then I'm only really paying for a ticket. And that ticket is, you know, it's, I have to admit, it is getting more and more expensive. And sometimes it can be quite frustrating because you're sort of like, why is this going up? But cost of living is going up everywhere. Um, I agree with the notions that streaming platforms obviously give more opportunities, but like you said, to say it's an elitist. I hate the word they use, elitist. Is is very hypocritical coming from the the most capitalistic directors of the last <laughs> five to ten years. Like the two <laughs> two brothers that have had three of the biggest films in terms sure. of marquee marketing mainstream appeal mm. going to the cinema at 12.01 and having a yep. full pack cinema of screaming people it's hypocritical for them to turn around and go this is an elitist idea mm. because they're f- they're set for the rest of their lives because of the work they did on those films and it's hard work and putting it in a cinema is justified could you imagine if avengers endgame went straight to disney plus i know like, exactly it would not be the same that's why i think it's so hypocritical and i think i need again i needed to think about what i really didn't like about this and i kind of think i figured it out because they go on about oh what's well, about value on streaming you can have five people share one account for like what seven dollars a month ten dollars it depends what streaming platform you're on and watch 40 movies on that car and and for me it's like well the whole point of the theater is it's an experience and we we just talked about misery and half the conversation was about our history, you going to Blockbuster to rent the film, me watching it a lot as a kid, watching it on the DVD that I owned 20 years ago and it's still working. Like, part of the movie-going experience is the outer rim experience of seeing that movie, who you saw it with, um, all of those scenarios. And, and I think watching 40 films on streaming in one day to get your values worth, you're not giving the film the value and the time it deserves. I think we need to appreciate film more than we are. Maybe maybe the two content. maybe the two blokes who don't have to go to normal work and stuff like that could watch forty films, but like <laughs> most of us can only really squeeze three or four films in a week, and that's a that's a dedicated film person. Like we we come on this show sometimes and we have nine films we watch in a week, but that's a that's a <laughs> once every year sort of thing, once or twice a year, and we're actually actively seeking films to watch. Yeah. Whereas if and we what start- when we both watch nine films in one week, what do we do? We sort of just brush through them. Yeah. So, all right, let's talk about this film for about three minutes and then talk about this, 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 and move on to the next one. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I would much rather talk about one film for an hour than talk about 40 films in an hour. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying here. That That's why I think it's not fair to call the cinema experience elitist. It's just people looking for the best experience or the best way to experience your film. At the end of the day, people are going to watch The Grey Man in theaters and or streaming. Who's going to have the better experience? You know, it's, it's 20 bucks to buy a ticket here. And that's two drinks at a bar, if you're lucky. Right. And the cinematic experience can be, you know, Olvis, which is a three-hour odyssey in the cinema, but I'm paying <laughs> 20 bucks for that, whereas yeah. I'm paying two hour, two hour, for two hours for a 100-minute film. So it's like both paying 20 for both, and like even then they're both going to be longer than the time I'll spend in a bar buying two drinks or buying a dinner. Yeah. Like, for $20. And it's like... So, yeah, it's just an experience. It's a thing to do. Yeah. It's not... Yeah, if you... It becomes a very expensive thing if you're going to five or six movies at the cinema a week. Right. But who's doing that? (laughs) 
We love we love movies, but I tell you, sometimes we try and crack that number. Max, I think the best. I think that I think you've done it maybe once in the four years we've done this show, where you've gone to the cinema like five times in a week or something. Possibly, I think I've done it once. Right, right. (laughs) It's just not something you naturally do, and and certain things have to line up that allow you to go because on most given weeks in the cinema, there isn't five things you want to go watch. No, I yeah, it's. I just think, even from the standpoint of, like, we have a gold-class thing and we're, like, for the family and we're waiting for the right movie to come for us all to get together and watch it in gold-class. And it's, like, we are that we are paying for the experience of gold-class, we're watching it together, we want to pick the right movie for that experience. This response from the Russos, or this comment, I should say, is simply about accessibility to as many films as possible. I don't have a problem with that and I don't have a problem with you looking out for the little guy who can't afford the theater experience or is looking for the cheapest way to enjoy films. But don't disregard the impact of the experience of going to the theater. Or just the impact it's had on their career. Well, those, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like the, for those two particular brothers, you know, we, we episode, what, 12 of the show, we did Welcome to Collinwood, which is like... Yeah, something like that. A very... Uh, no one's watched that film <laughs> compared to, like... And so you're telling me if you without the cinema, you guys would have people would remember your like name and and remember you like or be active to go and watch those films because of the films you yeah. we wouldn't have watched. Well, even the follow up Cherry, they went straight to Apple TV Plus, and not a lot of people like Cherry. It was included. So was not aren't they going to be remembered as the two? Let's be real, they're going to be remembered as the brothers that did Avengers and Avengers Endgame and all that, That's it. and and they're going to be remembered for their big blockbuster cinematic experience, which goes completely against their, uh, their point on streaming platforms. Because if it was, if everything was just on streaming platforms, the Russos might not be a, a, a name synonymous with popularity or mass media culture. So it's, it's kind of interesting because they would not nearly have nearly as much impact if their movie just went straight to their film, just went straight to, Disney Plus. I mean, so. and they, and I frankly think they're seeing this in real time because it's not that Grey Man's getting great reviews either. So I don't know if this is just like a cry of frustration. I will end it on this other quote that they did leave with. Uh, you know what might make everybody happy is if Netflix starts doing the 45-day windows and they have their giant digital distribution platform. Everybody wins. This feels like... Well, that feels like where it's going. So he's essentially saying the best way is to have it you have your theatrical experience, but have it come straight. To, I mean, we both talked about how quick Doctor Strange came to Disney+. Plus. Again, I have no problem with that at all. But don't call it an elitist notion to go to the cinema. Because like you said, Zeke, a lot of their careers were frankly made by the shared cinematic experience of going to see Avengers Endgame in a theater. Anyway. There you go. So that's coming to Netflix this week. <laughs> Coming to Disney Plus this week, we have Aftershock, which is a documentary that follows two families following the preventable death of two mothers in childbirth. Sound a rallying cry on the U.S. maternal health crisis. Um, and if we want to do a drastic U-turn from that uh, that theme, we also have the sing-along versions of Moana and the Little Mermaid. There you go. So you have one for each ilk of the family coming to Disney Plus this week. Uh, coming to Paramount Plus this week, you've got The Day the Music Died, the story of Don McLean's American Pie, which sees the man himself share secrets behind the 50-year-old iconic song. So that could be cool. 
and Rumble, an animated film about an underdog monster in a monster wrestling sport, played by none other than Will Arnett. Bojack's a monster now. There you go. There you go. We mentioned Bojack earlier. (laughs) And coming to cinemas, uh, nothing because the Russos declared nothing. I'm kidding. You have official competition, which sees a wealthy businessman hire a neurotic director to produce his crowning achievement. A brilliant art film, which sees Penelope Cruz and Antonio Banderas. Very exciting. And like you mentioned earlier, Zeke, the black phone is now wide, as well as where the crawdads sing. We talked about both this from last week, but they're now both wide and there awesome. There you go. Very exciting stuff. If only it came to streaming, Zeke. Well, I'm not going to do it. The Russos are in luck, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> we're not watching any of those films next no, week on the not. show. Jake, we are watching something on a streaming platform, helping out the little guy. Oh, God. <laughs> um, we can afford to do it, Zeke. <laughs> <laughs> but what are we watching? Uh, next week of the show, we're going to Apple TV Plus and watching Wolf Walkers. Wolf, wolf, hunt them far and yonder. The forest is brimming with wolves. It's my job to hunt them down, not yours. But we could hunt them together. Wolves, bears, dragons even. <laughs> <laughs> One of them wolf walkers. Wolf walkers? The ones that can talk to wolves with some wild magic. You can come out now. We can smell ya, you stick. You're a wolf walker. You're a wolf when you sleep. A girl when you're awake. Robin! Something's happened to me. Yeah, I can see that. Flipping great. You're a wolf now. Be a wolf! Robin, a young girl, follows her father into Kilkani on an assignment to hunt the last wolf pack. However, she befriends a girl from a mysterious tribe and learns their secret. It could be Kilkani or, oh my god, they killed Kenny. Yeah, so I've never watched this film. You talked it up a couple of years back. I love Wolf Walkers. It's excellent. So we're going to dive into that. Felt like a bit of animation, so here we go. There we go. Of all ilks, as you will see if you watch this film, I'm probably going to have to bump out the old PS5 six-month Apple TV Plus subscription model, but uh, it'll be worth it to rewatch this excellent film. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Wolf Walkers. Oh!